Good morning, church. Now, before we start, I just need to, uh, we're, we're going to be embarking on a brand new series today, and uh, it's going to be the next five weeks out of a fantastic passage of Scripture. We're going to camp five weeks in one chapter, Romans chapter 8, and we're going to be in Romans chapter 8 for five weeks, and we're going to go through it. <clears throat> the series is called Confidence. It begins by the great statement, there is no condemnation in Christ. It ends with there is no separation. And in the middle, he keeps giving us wonderful, wonderful things that give us confidence. Before I go there, I want to, we're going to look at a brief video that was made. And uh, here's the context of it. You know, we do this thing in the fall called the Jaffray Project. You go, who's Jaffray? What's the Jaffray Project? And the beautiful thing is, for those of us in the GTA, Robert Jaffrey was the heir apparent of the Globe and Mail years and years ago. And what he did was God got a hold of his heart, gave him a heart for the world, that the good news of Jesus Christ, the freedom that Christ brings, needed to be proclaimed all around the world. And his father told him, if you leave, you can walk away from the entire fortune. And he did. And Robert Jaffrey went... And he went to China and Vietnam, Cambodia, other places. And then we sent full-time people there. Well, just recently, a few months ago, it was the 100th anniversary of Christianity and the Sikh Christian Missionary Alliance in Cambodia. They had a big celebration. It was amazing. All of the IWs that have been there for a long time, that is international workers, they all gathered. Marie Enns is there. She's going to be on here, but she's going to be speaking in Khmer. Uh, there are going to be subtitles underneath. I oh, just want to give you a flavor, and here's why. Some people think when they go, well, I'm dating myself, and some of you in the room as we were talking last night, Gordy, uh, Frank Zappa, a bit of an old rocker. <clears throat> and Frank said this about the church and its missions. He said it's the height of cultural arrogance. That was 30, 40 years ago. When you travel the world and you see the bondage that people are in, in utter fear of evil spirits, of hatred, of prejudice, bound in alcohol and drugs and gambling, you know, we could go on and on and on. When you see the difference that Christ makes, even in the, as we're going to learn in a couple of weeks, even, even in the very creation, I've been in areas around the world where it's absolutely desolate, but the Christians' homes, yards, fields are beautiful. The difference that Jesus makes and what he calls us to, I dare say, is not the height of cultural arrogance. That is a statement that I think is highly arrogant when you see the, what Christ has done and brought freedom. So let's celebrate what we've been doing and what others have been doing. You're going to see our missional partners and, and others that have been there, but just let's take a look. Well, you're right now. 
năm đồng năng lo nơi Campuchia ប្រាយឆ្នាំប្រាយឆ្នាំមួយ That's awesome. Like every single day when all of the churches got together down in uh, Phnom Penh, uh, there was uh, like almost 15,000 every day for the whole week, and it was quite a celebration. Friends, when you give to mission, you are helping fund work that is going and making a difference around the world, and there's fruit being born all over. So uh, we just want to thank our mission team and... Uh, for the work that they've been doing and keeping missions in front of you. We want to try to do maybe a one a month or something like that once every six weeks, a good mission uh, moment for us to keep our eyes on the fact that God has not just called us to make a difference here, but he's a global God to make a difference all around the world. So 
I would like to pray, and let's begin. Father, we've been worshiping you. Even as we watch, we worship what you have done. And we praise you, Lord Jesus, for the power of the word of God. And Lord, I really believe this, that in my hands, I hold the written word of God. And as I consistently read it and study it, memorize and apply it, my mind will be renewed, my heart will be transformed, my life will be changed. And that is true for every one of us. I thank you for the power of the written, living word of God through which the spirit of God speaks powerfully. And we invite you now to do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, Romans chapter 8, and before I throw the scripture up, because uh, I'm going to work through, we're just uh, going to be looking at four verses today, and uh, I would just like to read, um, in the context of all of this, Paul has been teaching about the power of the gospel. Romans is a, a letter to the church in Rome about salvation, about relationship with Christ and the how God has justified us before his holy presence through Christ and all of that. And he's talking about uh, what he's done for us, and uh, yet there's, there's great power in our humanness and wrestling that goes on. Do any of you struggle like I do to overcome a particular character flaw, to overcome a particular sin in, your, in our lives, uh, to wrestle with weaknesses. We were talking yesterday as the men went down to the Marley's game, and we were talking on, as we were walking in, and um, that uh, one of my, well, actually, it was when we were driving. Yeah, it was when we were driving, Gordy. And uh, my Achilles heel is impatience. Lori, you're laughing a little too loudly over there. <laughs> one of our previous elders and knows very well. Um, it's one of the things that, but here's what we said last, yesterday. I'm certainly not where I should be or want to be in that area, but I thank God I'm not where it used to be. There are sins in my heart and my life that I can just say thank you to God for that have not been there for a few decades. i got to still be alert to it. But the power of the Holy Spirit working in enables us. Paul's talking about his wrestle. He's already been redeemed. He's talking about this life that he's trying to live. And I just pick it up at the end of chapter 7. And he says, you know, he, the things he wants to do, he doesn't do. The things he doesn't want to do, he does. Does that sound like your walk? Let's just be real. Fr friends, we haven't said this for a long time, but I just want to say it because there's lots of new people since COVID. This church was built on the fact one of our deep values is this authentic vulnerability in the process of life change. We liken this to 
whether it be a hospital or an auto body shop in the automotive industry. We're not a showroom. A lot of churches are showrooms. But every one of us have dents. We need tune-ups, regular maintenance. Some of us had some pretty tough head-on collisions. Others have been broadsided. Every one of us has dents. And we all need ongoing work. So let's just declare again, coming out of Summit, we're more like the auto body shop. Let's not be a showroom. Because the gravitational pull in churches is towards legalism, towards inauthenticity, and hypocrisy. And let's not go there, friends. And so I stand before you as, you know, the first in line to just be very, very real. We're not where we should be or want to be, but we, by the grace of God, are not where we used to be. And uh, you should be thankful for that when you're a pastor, I'll tell you. So Paul's talking about all this, and then he says, you know, I, I wrestle with this, for I delight in the law of God my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law in my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells within me. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Last verse of chapter 7, thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. See, he's, it's a wrestle, even though Jesus has saved him. But then comes chapter 8. And where this is going to take us, he's going to talk about the law of the spirit of life in Christ and how the Holy Spirit will keep doing his work. But let's start in 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. For by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according to not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So, let's trust the Lord. He's going to open this passage up to us. And uh, let's begin. Four verses. Again, we're going to go through this chapter and, uh, that's going to give us, you and me, greater confidence. Greater confidence. Uh, it's going to bless the believer, and if you're an explorer in the room, if you're seeking, you're wondering about God, kicking the tires of the church, you're kind of wondering, uh, I just trust that what you hear is going to help you to understand what you might be considering. And every week is going to build on the previous, giving us more and more confidence. So, we're looking at not condemned, but liberated this morning. And if you are, again, discouraged by what seems like an inability to conquer, to free of weakness, avoid a behavior, not react in a certain way, or to submit to an authority figure, to not cave to peer pressure, or to overcome something, this is for you. Let's pick it up. Romans 1, therefore. Whenever you see a therefore in the Scripture, you should ask, what's it 
there for. And uh, what he's doing is he's tying it immediately right back to what we just read and the wrestle he's having. But it goes even farther back to the beginning of chapter 6 where he talks about our union with Jesus in his death and his resurrection. Some commentators say it might even go back to chapter 3 when he begins this whole thing about how the wages of sin is death and we find ourselves in a state of condemnation before God. But it connects that. Condemnation, it's a term taken from the courtroom. It means God's righteous and holy judgment, a verdict that is resulting in God's holy wrath, that is his rightful anger against sin, and being sentenced to eternal separation from him and his loving presence in the afterlife. And the good news for the believer is this, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. You, if you are in Christ, it's a statement that means if you believe in Jesus, if you have opened up your heart to him, believe he is the Son of God, that he died on the cross for you, that he rose again victorious on the third day, then if you put your faith in him to receive him and to commit your life to follow him, what happens is this. You get transferred. You were in a state of condemnation, and now you get airlifted and brought into the kingdom of his dear son. You are now not under the condemnation of God. Do I hear an amen? Boy, you guys, man. <laughs> anyway. They told me when I moved out here 24 years ago that this was like the place of establishment and everyone was very conservative. So I'm not asking you to jump off chairs, but maybe a little bit of a yes once in a while would be a good thing. Because saying amen to something like to a preacher is like saying sick him to a dog. You know? So, anyway. <clears throat> there is no condemnation. I, I went to church in the Bahamas. It was the best experience of my life, man. Anyway, I won't go there. When is there no condemnation? What does the passage say? Now, the minute you trust Christ, the nanosecond you put your faith in him and ask him to come to live within you and you surrender to him, immediately. Now, there's two nuances to the word now. I just love this. I hope you get excited about it as I do. There's two things that when we look at the word now, one is that it's finally here, finally now. After all this waiting, you're anticipating something, finally, no condemnation. All that's been happening in biblical history all the way up to the point the death and resurrection of Jesus and the gospel is preached, finally, now, there is no condemnation when you believe. It's finally here. We don't have to wait any longer. It's arrived. What we waited for has finally come. And here's a second way. It's already here. And this looks forward in biblical history to the end of time when Christ returns. Because we all think this, that condemnation is coming or we're declared with no condemnation at the end when Christ returns. <gasps> it's now. It's now. It's already here. 
So it's finally here, looking from the Older Testament now to that point. It's already here, looking from the end of the times and pulls it into the future, or into the present from the future. We don't have to wait any further. It came early. What we are longing for has come. There is no condemnation while we live here on this earth, nor later when we die when Christ, or when Christ returns. Now, there is no condemnation, and it's coming now. It's here. For who? Not for everybody? There is no condemnation over my life is a statement that those who believe in Christ can say. And those who are in union with him by faith can say it with great confidence. The scripture says that there is no other name under heaven by which someone is saved. Jesus taught already. Sometimes we think, oh, churches are judgmental. Jesus isn't. Do you know what Jesus said? We like to pick and choose what he said. Here's what he said in John chapter 3, verse 17. For God, these are the direct quote of Jesus, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already. You're in a state of separation from God. You don't have, you haven't received the very life of God through Christ and his Holy Spirit. So you, you, you are physically alive. We talked about this last week, spiritually dead. You haven't received life. You haven't received the forgiveness of God, the acquittal of God where you're justified and declared not guilty before a holy God. That's what Jesus said. There is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that good news? That is great news. He goes on in verse 2. He says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. This is about the Spirit's work in us when we trust Christ. Jesus' Holy Spirit comes into the life of a person who trusts him and applies not only the victory of Jesus and his uh, victory over death and sin and condemnation, but he then also applies to us the resurrected life of Jesus, and there's a new law now functioning. Now, law is very interesting. It does not necessarily mean Old Testament law, not in this verse. What he's talking about in law, when he says law here, it's uh, an authority and power, a principle. So there's something active. The law or the principle, the dynamic of the Holy Spirit has set you free in Christ Jesus. From the law, the power, the dynamic of the spirit of the law of sin and death. We live in the law of sin and death in our flesh without Christ. But once we trust him, it's like a new law that supersedes the old law is now in play. We now have the ability and the freedom to choose to obey God, to love the things of God, and to begin to live how his Holy Spirit trans, you know, tr uh, transforms us. We begin to live the way he wants us to live. 
And this law has set you free. So, I want to summarize this. Not only are we set free from the sin operating within us, but from the end results of being governed by the law of sin, which is death. Spiritual deadness. Now, brokenness, addiction, pain, hurts. Spiritual death and eternity separation from and the absence of the manifest presence and beauty and wonderful love of God. The law of sin and death is the authority and power which rules in a life where God doesn't have the upper hand and where flesh is dominant. That inner propensity that you and I have to do things that are wrong, to do our own thing, to reject God, hold him at bay, not surrender to him, not submit to him. We all want our way. We don't want to do that. Now, please understand, the law of sin and death and the law of life in the Spirit are not equal and opposites. There's no yin and yang going on here. This is the law of sin and death, but the law of the Spirit of life in Christ is a higher law, a superior law. It trumps the law of sin and death. It's a more potent operating power and a more influential governing authority in our lives than that of sin and death. So the Holy Spirit's operating in our lives, His operating power and His governing authority supersedes the law of sin, transforming our minds, sanctifying our hearts, putting death and evil deeds out of the body, liberating us from the power and the authority of sin. Now, this is going to be the main message of next week of how the Holy Spirit lifts us in all of that. And so we read verse 3, at least the first half of it. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. In this verse, it is referring to the Old Covenant law, the Mosaic law. That's found in the Older Testament, in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and other laws. For God has done what the law could not do, weakened by our flesh. All the rules and the regulations of the Old Testament books could not give us life. The law reveals our sin because it has all these commandments and all these things we should do and we never measure up. It's like a magnifying glass or a spotlight on when we don't live up to it. It shows us our sin. That's what it means because of the weakness of our flesh. You know how it is? You have your kids got cookies out on there, you say, don't have a cookie. What happens? And some of you are so smug, you see a sign that says, don't touch, wet paint. What do you do? Sure you do, you touch it, see. No trespassing, we go. Signs that say 100 kilometers an hour. Isn't there something in us, this propensity? I went to Longo's the other day, and I was going in, and I didn't want... That's the exit. I'll go in the in, you know. I went in the outdoor, to quote a famous rock band. 
There's something inside of us. We love to do what we don't like to surrender. And those may be simple examples. But in the weakness of our old nature and our flesh, it's, it's not that the law was wrong and it's not good, but it's because of our weakness and our propensity to not live it out, it was powerless to change us and give us new life. Laws don't change you to make you and give you life. They just expose when you don't live up to them. God's law can't make us perfect. It only reveals how imperfect we are. It can't make us holy. It shows us how unholy we are. It can't make us righteous. It shows us how unrighteous. In fact, according to the Scriptures, it actually fuels our sin magnifying how unholy we are. I was reading this week about a guy named Robert. Uh, you could help me with this, uh, Italians in the room. Cialdini. Robert Cialdini was a researcher on the theory of persuasion. And he conducted an experiment in the Petrified Forest in, uh, near Arizona. The Pe Petrified Forest National Park in Arizona. See, the park had a problem. And the problem was this, that people would steal pieces of petrified wood all the time. And so he first put up a, a big sign when they greeted them, and it said this, your heritage is being vandalized every day by theft. Losses of petrified wood is now 14 tons a year, mostly through small pieces. Then he and his colleagues ran an experiment where they went through all of the different pathways in the park. Half of the pathways, they put signs up, do not steal, don't take any. The other half, they left totally, no signs or anything. And you know what they found out after their experiment? The signs, the pathways that had signs that say, do not take or don't steal it. Three times as much petrified wood was taken under and from the areas around the signs that say not to than the ones that had no signs. What does that tell us? There's this propensity within human nature Okay, so for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. And how, what did he do? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus, the Christ, God the Son, came in a sinless human body, a real human body, now, stick with me on this. The wording here is very intentional. It's anointed by the Spirit, and it has great significance. He said, it, um, he was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, had he said, in the likeness of flesh, we'd say, well, it sort of was like flesh, but it actually wasn't real human. Not a real body. The fact is, he did have a real body. If he had said he came in sinful flesh, then that's a problem because his body was not a sin nature, but Jesus was sinless. So when he says in the likeness of sinful flesh, it was very important because he's saying he had a very real body 
but did not have a sinful nature. What looks like the bodies of everyone else who has a sinful nature, his physical real body was and had a a human nature, fully human, without sin. Now, the New Testament book of Hebrews says that Jesus, this conversation between Jesus and the Father says, for a body, Jesus says to the Father, you have prepared for me. He made a body like he made Adam's body. In Corinthians, he calls him the last Adam. The first Adam was a creation of God placed within the Garden of Eden, fully human with an innocent human nature. But that Adam chose to sin. And he represents all of us because we would have done the same. Jesus, God made a body And instead of placing it again in Eden, he placed it within the womb of a teenage girl named Mary. So he is fully human with exactly the same nature as Adam had, innocent. 100% human, 100% God, without admixture, joined two natures forever. It's called the the theology of the incarnation, the God-man. And whereas the first Adam chose to sin, the second Adam chose to obey, even though he suffered. And hence, he was sinless. So he was sent, he sent his own son in the likeness of human flesh, and he sent his own son for sin. What does that mean? The father sent him to atone for and defeat sin. The Old Testament had all these types, and in that type and in the practices that foreshadowed the coming of Jesus, they would take a perfect spotless lamb and the high priest would go into the holy of holies and he would sacrifice that lamb on behalf of the the nation and cover their sin holding them over until the next year and all of these things were building until finally the prophecies like from Isaiah 53 that he was led like a lamb to the slaughter he was pierced for our transgressions he was bruised for our iniquities by his stripes we are healed Jesus, God the Son, was condemned and crucified in his human body, sinless but human. But in that moment, all of the sin of all of humanity, yours and mine, was placed on him so thoroughly that the Scripture says that he became sin in his human body and was sacrificed, condemned, crucified, in the sacrificial act of God. You see, God, he was smitten for our iniquities. He was afflicted by God. And the punishment of us was laid on him, and it brought us peace. He was forsaken as the Father diverted his holy glance as he hung on that cross bearing all of the sin of the world. 
and Jesus was condemned in our place. For God did what the law couldn't do. The law can never give you life. The law could never remove your sin. So Jesus came, and he came not only in his human flesh, in the likeness of us, he came in a human and was condemned in the flesh. Why? Verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Those of us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You say, wait a minute, hang on. I just, I just thought you said that the law couldn't do that and we couldn't. Now it's saying that the righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in us. How does that make sense? Well, there's a number of ways to understand this. And uh, I'll just share with you some of the things that the commentators say. One is this that Jesus actually, in his human nature, actually fulfilled all of the laws of God. Now, he didn't obey all the things the Pharisees added on to all God's law, but he fulfilled God's law perfectly. That's one way. So he did it in our place. He required the righteous requirement of the law so that when we are in him, he did it for us, fulfilled in us because of our union with him. Here's another way. Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. If you read the Older Testament, there's hundreds of laws. What's the requirement, singular? Jesus fulfilled the requirement that all the law called him to. He gave his life and his spirit within, empowering us to live a life that will fulfill this law, both in our union with him, it happened, and in the present as the spirit empowers us and now gives us the capacity to actually fulfill the righteous requirement single of the law. And what is it? The law's requirement is love. To love God, to love neighbor, and to love ourselves, one another. You remember Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, all of the law is fulfilled in that. Later on in Romans, in chapter 13, verses 8 and 10, it says that law is fulfilled when Christ's followers love one another. In Galatians, it said, we walk in the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit enables us to fulfill the law of Christ, which is to love and serve one another. Walking in the Spirit and being alive and empowered by God's Holy Spirit, will enable us to love God, love one another, and love neighbor. And that fulfills the requirement. All of the laws are about so that we will love God with everything we have. We'll love neighbor as we would love ourselves and love one another as Christ loved us. And now through the Holy Spirit, the law of the, the, you know, the, law of the Spirit of the life of, in Christ 
has superseded our sinful nature, and now through the power of the Holy Spirit, we have the freedom to now be able to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. Jesus did it for us, and in our union with him, judicially before God, it's fulfilled. But practically, experientially in you and me, the law of the life and the Spirit enables us to fulfill that righteous requirement. Catherine Booth, the Booths were the founders of the Salvation Army. She said this, what the law tried to do with restraining rules, the gospel does with inspiring power. You can never conform it from the outside. It's something that comes from the inside, the spirit of the life in Christ. Ezekiel 36 prophesied, I'm going to put a new spirit, a new heart within you. I'm going to put my spirit in you. Philippians 2.13, it's God at work in you, causing you to will and do his good pleasure. And so we're going to unpack that. This is beautiful, friends. What we can't do in our own, God has done. He did it through Christ. And in our faith union with him, all of that is applied to us. And the bonus is, in our experience of living, he gives us the spirit of God, a new law, a new operating power, a new governing authority called the Holy Spirit that lifts us to a new law above our nature, our fleshly law, and enables us to live the way God calls us to, to fulfill love of God, neighbor, and one another. Is it any wonder when Ephesians talks about grieving the Spirit, it's in the context of relational junk? So it's my prayer that none of us here today, no one would leave the service knowingly in a position where you remain in a state that Jesus calls already condemned. If you don't have confidence that you're in Christ, I want to encourage you to make your way sometime before you leave today, to talk with uh, some of the people who will be here wearing orange lanyards. They'd love to pray for you and help you. And God will apply the gracious gifts that he purchased through his, the death of Jesus. He will give you his very life. He will forgive all of your wrong. He will enable you to fulfill the requirement of his law. Now, God does honor our choices. If you say no, that's your choice, and it's your freedom to do that. But one thing you can't choose is the consequences of that choice. You may not believe it, but it's the consistent testimony of the Scripture. And here's the thing. I get to choose, too. We sang this. I have decided to follow Jesus. The world behind me, the cross before me. I get to choose who I'm going to be condemned by. I've already chosen not to be condemned by God because I've surrendered to him. But in my faith and my life for him, I'll take condemnation from people from our culture, 
from demonic forces that whisper lies and accuse me, I'll take those. I will not be condemned by God. He's given too much. Who are you choosing to be condemned by? In the shortness of this life, let it be others. Don't let it be God. You and I can have confidence to not be condemned. I trust that he will grow our confidence these days as we learn how to walk and live in the power of his spirit according to the law of the life of Christ in his, in his presence.